I'm Paul Noglos, executive producer of Crisonia. Today's Crisonia conversation is fixing healthcare, a path forward anchored in diet, nutrition, and mental health. Joining me for this conversation are Holly Harris Phillips, president and CEO, Appalachian Regional Healthcare, and Dr. Dexter Sherney, SVP, chief medical officer at Adventist Health, and also past president, American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Today's Crisonia conversation grew out of onstage discussions we had at our Crisonia Forum in Brooklyn at the end of September. Over the past 18 months, we've heard much from the CDC and medical community about the effectiveness of social distancing vaccines and testing in limiting the spread of COVID-19. At the same time, it's become common knowledge that pre-existing conditions like obesity amplify the devastating impact of the virus and its variants. Yet a number of speakers pointed out on the Brooklyn rooftop that we still don't talk about the role of diet, nutrition, and other common sense prophylactics in limiting the pandemic and its impact. This against a backdrop that as a country, Americans annually spend $1.7 trillion on food while the annual economic cost of preventable diet-related illness in the US actually exceeds this number. Why do we never put these conversations together? Over the next 50 minutes or so, we hopefully will. I wanna remind all of the audience um, to please ask questions through your Q&A. You don't need to ask the, you don't need to wait until the end of the conversation to ask questions. Um, we'll be looking at the Q&A box and I'll try to get your questions to the floor. Let's start by getting to know each other a little bit. Please take a few minutes to let us know who you are and what you do. Holly, please go first and be sure to include an overview of Appalachian Regional Health. And then Dr. Sherney, please talk to us about both Adventus and your former role as president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And if you can tell us a little bit even about before that at Cummins and Blue Cross Blue Shield, that would be great. Holly? Thank you, Paul. Hi, everyone. Holly Harris Phillips. I'm the president and CEO of Appalachian Regional Healthcare. We are an integrated healthcare delivery system that stretches across Eastern Kentucky and Southern West Virginia one of the most economically depressed regions of our entire country. We are a system of 14 hospitals, 90 plus clinics, home health agencies, DME, retail pharmacy. So we are about as integrated as you can be in terms of modern day healthcare. Prior to my role as president and CEO of ARH, I was vice president of strategy and chief strategy officer for the system for almost 20 years. And prior to joining Appalachian Regional Healthcare, I was the executive director of investor relations for LifePoint Hospitals based in Nashville, Tennessee, and worked on the for-profit sector of healthcare. Great, Dr. Sherney. Hi, everyone. Uh, glad to uh, join the, the call. Uh, I'm uh, the chief medical officer for Adventist Health, uh, the wellbeing division. I'm also the president for the Blue Zone uh, Wellbeing Institute, where we study new solutions along the lines that we'll have our discussion today. 
Uh, as Paul mentioned, I'm also the, the immediate past president for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, 7,000 plus uh, providers uh, that are really in the, the, the throes of uh, practicing lifestyle medicine and not just uh, telling people they should eat better and exercise more, but really doing this as a specialty where there's really a, a titrated therapeutic dose of these kinds of things and they do it on an individual basis uh, you know, personalized to that individual in terms of how they should, you know, structure their sleep or what we call the six pillars. And we can speak more about that as well. As Paul mentioned, I, I was also the chief medical officer and in charge of global benefits for Cummins uh, Diesel uh, out of Indiana, a home state uh, close to uh, where Holly is. And uh, 55,000 employees across the globe. And uh, we had a what we believe first of its type uh, lifestyle medicine practice, which food as medicine was a big component of that. And I've also served as the chief medical officer for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. And I bring that in because a lot of the things that we were trying to do in certain communities around the state of Michigan, as you might imagine, uh, um, Detroit and, and Benton Harbor, Flint, uh, were really struggles for us and part of it had to do with some of these social determinants that, that also speak to why people can uh, have access to uh, certain foods and things like that that we'll talk about more as well. So a little bit about me, Paul. Uh, that's terrific. Um, Dr. Sherney, let's start off with your definition of lifestyle medicine. Um, you mentioned the six pillars, but I'm, I'm not really sure that people understand what lifestyle medicine is. So lifestyle medicine, the way the American College of Lifestyle Medicine looks at it is really the foundation to health as well as healthcare. And uh, as I said, the six pillars, uh, which include uh, nutrition, physical activity, sleep, uh, stress management, substance abuse, and how we connect with one another uh, really are the pillars. And what a lifestyle medicine physician does is that they prescribe a therapeutic dose of those elements. And so if you look at traditional medical guidelines, they always talk about lifestyle as being the pillar of what we do or the foundation. But if you think about what actually happens in clinical care, we spend very little time on those pillars, right? We, we say, well, you know, improve your diet and then they'll prescribe a medicine. Uh, and what we do and what we advocate for is let's spend a little more time on what we were actually calling the foundation. And if we spend more time there, we'll have to spend less time doing some of these other things. It'll be better for the individual and it'll also be better for our cost system. Um, you know, I, I often talk about, you know, if you're growing a plant in your, in your garden, if you attend to the soil, the sunlight and the water, you get a healthy plant and everything about that plant becomes healthy. Well, the human organism is the same way. If you attend to some of these basic lifestyle issues, not too much, not too little, uh, then the, the whole individual becomes healthy. The diabetes gets better. The hypertension gets better. The depression gets better. The osteoporosis, all of those things get better. Now, that's not to say that we don't have to intervene every once in a while with medications and surgery, but it would require much less of that uh, if we spent more attention on the foundation. So that, that's how we, we look at it, Paul. Terrific. Um, Holly, do you wanna to talk to us a little bit about some of the basic lifestyle medicine elements that fits squarely into traditional medicine and, and disrupt the healthcare cycle. I know you talked to us a little bit about, during our prep call, a little bit about some of your, your mottos and the like, and we'd love to hear those. 
Yeah, a couple points to follow up on Dr. Sherney's excellent explanation of lifestyle medicine. We really have found a lot of value in going back to the principles of wellness in teaching our patient population how to eat and how to move. These are principles that actually have been overlooked in today's world of modern medicine. And we are fundamentally trying to shift the healthcare delivery model to be loaded more on the front end of prevention and wellness and health education, rather on the back end of delivery when someone is diagnosed with stage four cancer or they already have diabetes. And that's the model that the US system is currently designed to function as. And we as providers get paid a lot of money on that back end of the spectrum in terms of the treatments and the surgeries the infusions and the whole spectrum of care that we deliver across our clinics and hospitals and home health agencies. And we are finding great value in shifting the equation to the front end and really focusing on wellness and well-being. And one of the things you had talked to us a little bit about, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that I think, I think you're trying to teach people how to eat and how to move. And I thought that was about as basic as possible. You know, even I understood it. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? So we have really been working with our physicians, especially our primary care physicians to weave that bit of education into their annual wellness visits with patients because our patient population population lives in very economically depressed regions where many of our patients don't have access to even a real grocery store. They are getting their groceries from a gas station or Dollar General. So trying to teach our, our patients how to eat, how to make a healthy choice, even if they're faced with a limited option like a Dollar General, and how to move again. Many of our patients lead very sedentary lives. They live in places where it's not safe to go out and walk down the street and there are no sidewalks to walk on. So teaching them how to move again, how just getting out and maybe walking around their grocery store if they have a grocery store in order to get some steps in that's in a, a safe place for them. So Paul, it's, it's really basics. You know, We're not asking patients to go to the gym and, and work out for an hour on their first adventure out to moving again, but it's really those baby steps to get them where we want them to be. Terrific. Um, so we do have a question that has come in from the audience. Um, I'm gonna hold off on this for just a little bit because we're gonna get to this in, in a few minutes, but I just wanted to ask you both, is lifestyle medicine becoming part of the curriculum at leading med schools in the US? And I would also, I'd include elsewhere in the world. It's just, I know that in talking to some of our, our doctors who've you know, provided to, to Crisonia and given us input, it sounds like you know, at least 20 years ago, this was nowhere to be found on the, on the curriculum of these doctors. Um, what's the situation today? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump it. Go ahead. I'll, I'll go ahead and just say real briefly that we do not see really any change from 20 years ago, Paul. The, 
the curriculum has not really changed to include a lot about health and nutrition. And we are very fortunate that we have been able to become members of the American Academy of Lifestyle Medicine and get access to their education. We have an internal medicine residency program that we operate in two of our hospitals. So we are now able to take those resources and educate our residents on the principles of nutrition and well-being. But our residents that come to us did not get that education in their medical schools. Dr. Yeah. Sherney, can you, can you tell us a, a little bit more? And also, why don't you tell us also how the College of, Ameri of Lifestyle Medicine, how it works? Absolutely. So the reason that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine exists is just to Holly's point. Uh, we were not taught this in medical school. I think I got about three hours and that's, that's about the average on nutrition over my four years as a, as a medical student. And then of course, very little as a resident, uh, we just wrote a prescription for, you know, nutritionist to maybe talk to the patient every once in a while if they had a wound problem or something like that. Uh, but we didn't really have a deep understanding of the kinds of things that are so important uh, to, to really using lifestyle and food in, in this way. And so that's why the American College of Lifestyle Medicine came into existence. There, because it is um, more than just, you know, telling people to eat broccoli, there's actually boards now that you can get in lifestyle medicine as a secondary board. So that means if you already are boarded in family practice, cardiology, whatever, rheumatology, you can get a second board in lifestyle medicine. And you, when you sit for those boards, obviously you have to get that education uh, that allows you to, to sit and pass for those boards. The good thing is that more and more people are starting to understand the benefit of what we're doing. And there are now some, some uh, medical schools that are actually doing this. There are about six uh, medical schools in, in the United States that are doing this. Uh, UC uh, San Diego is one of them, Loma Linda, University of Oklahoma College of Medicine, uh, the Indiana University School of Medicine and the University of South Carolina uh, Medicine in Greenville. So there are about six out there. And uh, so that's a good thing. So to Holly's point, you have to search hard and long to find these guys, but there are more and more of them starting to come through these. And I also wanna say that the whole health, in the whole health institute out of Oklahoma that's being funded uh, by the Waltons uh, is also a starting a medical school that really is focusing on not just including more lifestyle medicine, but it, the whole principle of that particular school will be based on lifestyle medicine. So uh, that, that's fundamental. Yeah, things are changing. Wow. Um, I'm gonna move to my next question. And I think this dovetails, we, had a, we have a question that came in from uh, Michael. I don't see his last name, but um, I was gonna ask, how can lifestyle medicine be effectively implemented or not? And you know, we were talking in our prep call, we were talking about for the workforce first and the patient population second. And then I'm just gonna read Michael's question. Is physician or hospital compensation tied to prescribed treatment or can revenues be generated just as effectively by helping patients address the foundations, sleep, diet, et cetera? And so I, I think those two questions go together. That is a complicated question, Paul, <laughs> because it really gets 
gets into the heart of um, reimbursement in healthcare, which um, you could speak for days on how physicians and hospitals are reimbursed. But in a short summary, no, physicians are not reimbursed for diet, nutrition, and that type of education that occurs. Um, there's great opportunity in terms of changing that model. And that's one of the things that we are really trying to work on here at ARH. And the other aspect of that too, as an employer, we employ a significant number of our physicians, changing how we incentivize them through our employment contracts with them. So that's something that health systems can do from an employer standpoint of the equation. And let me get back to your other question too. I do think it is important that we start with our employees and then, you know, simultaneously, but step two, really focus on our patients in the community as a whole, because if we can drive change through our workforce and have healthier, happier, more productive employees, they are members of our communities. They take that lifestyle and information home to their families and churches and civic organizations. So we employ about 6,500 people across our system. And that's where we are putting a lot of time and attention is on the changes that we can help with our workforce. And, and would, you, would you take that one step further? Um, Dr. Sherney, you had spoken to us a little bit about your experience at Cummins. And I thought it was, I thought it was very um, illustrative of what, what needs to be done. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? A absolutely, and, and really what we did, how we modeled that, uh, it really dovetails nicely to what Holly said is that we actually had to hire the physicians um, because, you know, currently most physicians are paid through what are known as CPT codes. You code and you bill. And so, you know, the more you code, the more you make, and there's really no incentive to, to, to do less, right? There's the incentive is to do more. So if you're really making people healthy, it ends up you're doing less. So it's really a disincentive, but if you put physicians on a salary, then they don't have to worry about eating what they kill, so to speak. They can actually, you know, spend time with the patient. They can really try to improve this. And for employers, that's important because you're not just looking at healthcare costs, but you're looking at overall productivity. You're looking at retention. You're looking at absenteeism and those kinds of things. And so for Cummins, for example, we were a global company. Uh, we were operating in some companies with a lot of employees that we really didn't have to worry about healthcare costs for those individuals because they had a universal single payer system. Um, but we still wanted to do these kinds of things because it helped us on the shop floor. It reduced those things that I mentioned, uh, like absenteeism that could promote productivity. So there was still a reason for us to want to do those kinds of things. The work that we did here in the United States, uh, again, those physicians were salaried. Uh, we included lifestyle as a central component. When you walked into the clinic, um, there was a sign that says you want to get off your medications. Uh, if so, then talk to your provider because we're a lifestyle medicine clinic. This is very possible through diet, exercise, and those things. And we can tailor that to your needs and start from wherever you are. We also had a teaching kitchen. And so for our type 2 diabetes program, you had to spend two times with two, two sessions with the the chef. And that was very important because we know that if people don't understand that healthy food can taste good, then they're not going to want to even think about eating it. And so this was experiential that these people could actually taste healthy food that they liked and enjoyed. And they would work with the chef to say, what do you like to eat in a typical day, Dexter? 
oh, okay, well, we can, we can actually do a mac and cheese that's actually a lot healthier than the stuff that you're eating now. So it's not like you have to give up stuff, but they're actually healthier ways to eat even the things that you enjoy. So uh, that was a big part of it. And uh, I think employers have a big opportunity uh, in doing those kinds of things. How did, Cummins, how did Cummins come up with this? Was this just something that you, you brought in and presented? Or I'm, I'm just interested in you know, how they actually did it. And does it now serve as a model for other employers and perhaps even much larger global employers? Well, that's a great question. So what we did is we spent over a year with our executive team and we asked the question, where is health produced? And we know from social determinants and the blue zones that it's really based on, on lifestyle. And the reason social determinants is such an issue is because it acts as a barrier to living a healthy lifestyle. If you have no access to healthy food, you're not going to get it. You can't afford it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when we start looking at the data, large observational studies, uh, you really see how important this is. And then if you look at the evidence, uh, you can see that people that are actually practicing lifestyle medicine are making some major inroads. And so that's how it, that's how it, uh, it uh, happened. And as a manufacturer, one of our things was Six Sigma. And Six Sigma is all about getting to the root cause. And so our, C our CEO challenged us and says, you know, we're innovating every year in terms of, you know, how we build these engines and fuel cells and nanotechnology, but we're not doing anything in healthcare. In healthcare, our costs go up 10% every year and we're not getting anything better. In fact, our people are getting sicker. So what, what's the return on that? And so he challenged us to say, let's get to the root cause. Why is this happening? And it's lifestyle. It's those chronic conditions uh, that are really driven by lifestyle. It's not somebody falling off of a ladder or breaking their, their hip or whatever. It's the chronic day in and day out, type two diabetes, you start on one medication, you end up on five all of those kinds of things. And so lifestyle really can play a role there. And that's how we got to it, Paul. Very good. Um, Holly, if you wanna just uh, add to that, I thought maybe we could shift a little bit. ARH is starting to offer patient education. And so, you know, as opposed to the workforce and actual patient and classes to learn new habits that support addressing the problem earlier. How is this going in the early days? We have had a lot of support for the initiatives that we have rolled out. We have actually invested in a vice president of wellness and education, and she is busy every day putting health programs together that we are able to take out into our communities. We've also in invested in a system-wide director of community outreach. So we are out working in our communities, working with local civic groups, and particularly working with the school systems because we really believe that lifestyle changes need to happen in the early years with children. So we are putting a lot of focus on curriculum that's based for different levels of school. And these children are just sponges and soaking up this knowledge and they are taking it home and actually transforming the lives of their parents and grandparents. We live in an area where a lot of our children are being raised by their grandparents because 
their parents have been lost in the opioid epidemic that occurred across our region. So lots of transformational activity going on. We're offering classes for our patients. We're doing a lot in terms of low-dose lung CT screening, trying to catch lung cancers on the front end, trying to prevent diabetes before it happens with our patient population. So there's just a tremendous effort that goes into this. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the way the system is designed, we as the system are putting our own financial resources at stake and in investing in these programs for our patients and communities. We do not get any outside reimbursement for these types of initiatives. Um, one, of the key, one of the key tenets of Crisonia is sharing information and sharing best practices and sharing ideas. At this point, do you feel that most of these initiatives are still being created pretty much in a vacuum? Or is there any type of a, of a central repository of best practices so that, that you would know what Cummins did, what worked, what didn't work, they would know what ARH is doing, or is that we're not there yet? I don't think we're there yet, Paul. We're far from it. You know, we find out what some of our other systems across the states are doing just through conversations, but there is no central depository. And there's, there's certainly not a depository between the provider side and then, you know, major employer side of the equation, which, you know, what, what Dr. Sherney did at Cummings is revolutionary. And, you know, employers across our country could learn a lot from that. But to my knowledge, there is no repository for that. Yeah, I, I, would, I would totally agree with that. It's unfortunate that there isn't. Uh, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has a sister organization, the Lifestyle Medicine Economic Research Council, uh, that is trying to do some of this, but uh, it, it's a hard task. And um, they're, they're making you know, baby steps in that direction. Uh, you know, one of the things we hope to do at the Institute that I'm running is, you know, we're trying to show these live demonstrations as well that not only bring that the clinical outcomes, but also the cost. And we're trying to model the cost, too, so that organizations like Holly don't have to do this out of their own coffers, that there's a financial reason to do the right thing and, uh, you know, creating the right incentives. So I really applaud organizations uh, like Holly's leading that they've taken the initiative to do this. I think a time will come, uh, hopefully it's not too long, uh, before you know, others start to see this and payers in particular, and they start reimbursing for true value, right? True value, not, there's, I, I hate to use the term fake, but there is fake value out there. You know, people game the system by upcoding, and then they claim they save money because, you know, they, it really wasn't as costly to treat those patients because they just, you know, added codes on top of a regular patient. Uh, and they claim that as savings. That's fake. And uh, but what we're trying to do here in lifestyle is really take the cost out and the cost savings and uh, to really show that. And so it will take data, but it will take collaboration among all of us that are working in this space and not just, you know, sporadically here and there. And, and where would you say we are in terms of the collection of that, that data? And, you know, because my next question was going to be, you know, how do, how do you measure lifestyle medicine in terms of quality of life improvements? And are there actual hard numbers that you can put on it financially, socially, and individually? I think there are. Uh, we're running two trials now. We're actually, we're in the recruitment phase. 
of two trials now where we're actually going to show the ROI and uh, the improvement. I, I did a small trial at Vanderbilt University when I was there in charge of employee health. And we showed an ROI in six months. And we showed it both on the medical as well as the pharmaceutical side of the equation. The savings were so dramatic in six months because we actually saw most of the savings on the pharmaceutical side uh, because healthy patients need less medications. And some of the drugs today are very expensive you know, most people look at what the copays and deductibles are for the individual, but the real cost is what the the employer is paying. Uh, you know, which is you know eighty to ninety percent of that cost, uh, and those drugs are very expensive. And so, when you can get someone off of the, some of those medications, there's a pretty fast savings that you can show uh, on your on your bottom line. So there are ways to do it, and we're doing the studies that we're doing now in the institute have the same kind of metrics around um, cost, but also we're looking at quality, we're, we're measuring well-being, we're measuring depression, uh, all of those kinds of things as well. And Paul, I'll just add, we are collecting data on our workforce as well. We have two options to our insurance plan. We have a wellness option and then the regular health option. So if employee decides they want the wellness option, they get a reduced premium for their health insurance, but they have to agree to an annual physical, certain blood work panels that have to be done, um, annual flu, COVID vaccine. So there is a, there's a list of criteria and we are able to see that our employee population that participates in the wellness insurance plan overall are healthier than those that do not. So I would say the data collection is in the infancy, infancy, but you know you have to start somewhere. And so I'm assuming from your comments that that big pharma is not behind this and is not behind um, desubscribing or deprescribing de um, their products. Am I right? Uh, yes. No. They they are not on board at all. I mean their profit margins are significant from these costly medications that patients are on. Many of our patient population are on 15 to 20 prescription medications. It is mind blowing the time it takes for one of our nurses to do a medication reconciliation on a patient is most likely an hour to try to figure out what our patients are taking and why they are taking it. So big pharma is making big money off this. They make big money off of all the cancer treatments that occur, all of the infusions that occur. Think about all the money that's being made with, with COVID, with monoclonal antibodies in the world of infusion on that spectrum. So no, they are not at the table on this one. If you ever want an eye-opening experience, Paul, just go one year to the JP Morgan Health uh, Conference in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> and, and listen how often you hear about people reducing the cost of care. It's all about the next shiny object that they can, they can bill and increase costs for. Um, we, have a, uh, we have a couple of questions that just came in. Um, so this one is from Anonymous. The most effective reduction for type two diabetes is the ketogenic diet ex exemplified by Verda, Verda Health's pot production by 77% of patients. Mm -hmm. 
yet ACLM is plant-based and not supportive of the ketogenic diet. Yet Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are also plant-based. How do you rationalize this dichotomy? That's Tell a great the doctor answer it. <laughs> That's a great question. So I'll say a couple of things. One is that um, we talk about a whole food plant-based diet. So whole food is half the equation, plant-based is the other, uh, because he's right. I mean, you can eat French fries and Oreos and that's a plant-based diet, but it's not a healthy diet and it's not gonna help you with your type two diabetes. So it's really the whole food aspects uh, of this as well as plant-based. The research is pretty strong that uh, a whole food plant-based diet uh, is very effective at uh, reversing uh, type 2 diabetes. And um, the issue with Verda and the keto and why uh, we don't support it uh, to the extent people believe we should uh, is that if you think about um, uh, a sink and you're putting water in it and the water is overflowing, right? And so you say the problem is uh, we have water that's overflowing. There are two ways to go about this. You can put less water in the sink or you can unclog the sink so that the water that you put in can actually drain. And so what a whole food plant-based diet does is it works on the insulin receptors, which is that drain at the bottom of the, the sink. You're opening that up. Whereas the ketogenic, what you're doing is you're just not putting water in the sink. You're taking away all the carbohydrates, you're taking away all the sugars and those kinds of things, but those things are still part of a healthy diet. We know that we need a lot of fiber, which comes from starches in our diet in order to feed our gut microbiome. We're learning a lot of information about the gut microbiome. So while it looks as if the keto is effective because you're not putting water in the sink, you're not putting sugar in the system, you're really not doing anything to unplug the sink so that now a person can actually get back to a healthy diet that includes more of those uh, whole grains and things like that that are part of a healthy long-term diet. So that's why we do that. And, and we can reverse type 2 diabetes off of a whole food plant-based diet, uh, uh, truly reverse it. Because the thing with the keto is once you go off the keto, you're right back but the whole food plant-based diet can be a sustainable diet that you can live for a lifetime and it's a healthy diet. And I would just add, Paul, you know, that goes back to what we talk with our patients about too, in terms of baby steps. We realize we can't take one of our patients who is eating McDonald's three times a day and put them on a plant-based diet and expect them to succeed. But if we can get them to make small shifts, three to 6% shift in their diet, then we can gradually move them along the spectrum of being whole food based. So you have to start somewhere. And I think, you know, the education in making small changes is really what we are focused on. And that's very important. And, and, and we, we really uh, uh, believe in that as well. So we meet people where they are and we gradually get them. So if we can't get them to become fully plant-based, but let's go more whole foods and things like that. And, and maybe get you off of the beef and the processed meats and move more towards these others, you know? So it, it is that process and, and uh, you have the right coaches in place to help people along that path. Well, I really appreciate those explanations. Um, you make it a lot less scary and a lot less daunting um, for folks who are trying to figure this out. Um, 
Let's go back to the genesis of this Crisonia conversation. So I mentioned earlier, if it's become common knowledge that pre-existing conditions like obesity amplify the devastating impact of the virus and its variants, I'll ask the question again, why don't we talk about the role of diet nutrition and other common sense prophylactics in limiting this pandemic and its impact? And Paul, I will just say it's simply because it is not a glamorous story to tell. You know, the media is very fixated on talking about the vaccine, talking about monoclonal treatment, talking about PPE, and honestly, talking about death and destruction. That makes good news stories. Talking about the obesity epidemic across America and the reason why we as a country have suffered so greatly from COVID is not a glamorous story that reporters are looking to tell. You know, through this pandemic, we have had numerous national news media reach out to us about stories, and not one of the requests has been anything about diet, nutrition, obesity, or lifestyle. So, I am a firm believer because we have seen it in our patient populations across this pandemic. Our patients that are obese, our patients that have comorbidities, our patients who are not vaccinated, COVID is a death sentence for them. And it's a message that has not gotten out across America. Dr. Shirley, yeah. do you have anything to add on that? No, I, I think she nailed it, but I just go back to my plant analogy where with lifestyle, everything gets better. Our immune system is part of our overall health. And that's why, you know, that's why you see uh, obesity and type two diabetes and heart disease all run together. They're all based on the same root cause, you know, getting back to the root cause. And so when you improve that root cause, then your immune system improves too. So it makes a lot of sense. And, but, but it's not, as, as, as I think Holly said one time, it's not glamorous. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I very much appreciate your comments on this. I'm, I'm determined to find a glimmer of hope in the conversation because it, it really feels like in some ways, you know, you're, you're really up against it. But as a community, do true grassroots activation, does true grassroots activation and support for lifestyle medicine have the ability to change the healthcare system from the top down? In other words, is there a way to go against these massive forces? And just how do you see this playing out? How do you see this playing out over the next 10 years, the next 20 years? I think there is hope, Paul. Um, there's hope on several fronts. I do think from the grassroots community-based front, there's a lot of hope because we see our communities, which as I've said before, are very economically depressed. They are showing up for talks that we are giving that are wellness-based, nutrition-based, health-related topics. So that we're seeing an interest. We are, we are seeing interest from specific church groups. And I think our, the religious communities across our country you know, are, are powerful and can come together and make changes. But most of all, I see the hope coming from our children and the reception that we see when we go into schools and work with, you know, even kindergarten, first grade, they are little sponges absorbing this information and knowledge that we are taking out to them. 
And I think, I think that's where we have to continue to focus if we want to change healthcare and change these awful lifestyles that we see people living and truly change the comorbidities that exist in our patient population, it really starts with the children. And I think, you know, we're working a lot with our pediatricians and working, helping educate parents and, and grandparents and providing that education to them because most of them were not raised in healthy lifestyles either. So there's, there's a lot of work that's focused on the children, but they truly are the hope for tomorrow. Yeah, and I'm, I'm optimistic as well, Paul. I, I think we see some things happen. I think it's gonna come from both ends. It's going to come top down and also bottom up. I think the bottom up will come more on the food, in the food situation because of our young people, because of uh, discussions around climate change and the impact that that, that meat products play in, in the on the climate. So I think we'll see that coming up. And I think from the top down, we'll see uh, organizations that are going at greater risk for healthcare costs. Uh, so they're, they're not paid by RVUs, how many things they can bill a CPT code for, but they're, they're, they're uh, at risk for what the overall cost is for those uh, uh, members uh, or patients. You're going to see it from that end, too. So I think you'll see it from both uh, ends, uh, coming at it maybe from different perspectives, uh, but it will cause the change, and however you get there is good. No, that, that's a good point, Dr. Sherney. We at ARH in January are launching our accountable care organization. So we will be going at risk for about 9,000 Medicare lives across the communities we serve. So we really have to be focused on changing lifestyle and hitting those indicators in, in order to get our reimbursement. But we're excited about the journey. You know, we are going at risk, but we think it's what it's going to take to really change the model. That's exactly right. And I would just add really quick that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has a health systems interest group. Uh, and we just started it less than a year ago. And there are over 40 health systems like Holly's uh, that have joined uh, Adventist Health. Uh, our system is joined as well, but it's for those reasons. So that's, that's very encouraging. Um, we've got another question that just came in. Um, is it true that some important groups like USDA are compromised to some degree because pharma companies, et cetera, are on their board and help push certain dietary re recommendations? Seems like we have to really work to find the truth. Well, politics is everywhere. And uh, so on those boards, you have pharma companies, but you also have big food. And so the food companies are pushing agendas as well. Uh, they actually passed something a few years ago that a pizza was considered a, a, a vegetable because it had tomato sauce on it. I mean, you know, give me a break. And, <laughs> and, and if you look at all of the, most of the quality guidelines through HEDIS and other things, there's talk about medication adherence. You don't see any quality things there that say, man, if you can reverse somebody's hypertension and they don't have to take a medication, don't you get credit for that? Isn't that a form of quality? Because we know that all medications come with adverse effects, right? So adverse drug effects, but, but food and things that we're talking about really don't unless, you know, so, 
So you're right. I mean, it's because those people are at the table. They don't even want to discuss some of these other things. Yeah, there, there are lots of conflicts of interest that exist across these organizations and their boards. And then you throw in the, the politicians associated with them. And then, you know, you really have to question too, some of these food companies out there, they may as well be chemical companies because, because what they're producing is not whole food. If you read the package, it is a bunch of chemicals that people are ingesting in their bodies. So no surprise that we see cancer on the rise and heart disease and diabetes, all of it. You know, an interesting uh, fact, no, I just said an interesting fact is that if you notice, they lobby to not only the politicians, but they also lobby to the, the patient groups. Uh, so if you notice, you don't see a lot of patient groups coming out against the pharmaceutical companies. Why is that? It's because the pharmaceutical companies are filling their coffers, <laughs> these non-for-profits, they're donating money to these organizations as well. So those organizations are pretty much silent when it comes to, you know, the cost of drugs and saying anything evil against the, the pharmaceutical company. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and it's, um, I just wanted to point out, and, and Holly was with us in Brooklyn the end of September, um, but Dr. Robert Lustig, he put up a, a, a truly chilling um, graph that showed how the incidence of cancer adhered almost directly to the rise of processed foods following World War II. And this in the most developed country on earth. And you don't see this same type of correlation, you know, if you're, if you're looking at France or if you're looking, you know, somewhere else in the world. This is in the United States we're talking. And anyway, um, it was just, it, it was really, it, it was illuminating and, and chilling at the same time. Um, why don't we, you know, we've got, let me just see, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, why don't we close by focusing on what you consider the biggest challenge ahead for the adoption of lifestyle medicine? But at the same time, and, and you can really get into this, we've, we've got enough time. Um, please identify also what you consider the biggest successes to date. Because again, we don't, we understand, you know, we, un, in some ways we understand the challenges, but I, I don't think enough is given to the, the advancements we're making. And back to Holly's point, again, you know, it's, it's not all that sexy of a story, but why don't we talk about that for a little bit? And then I've got, I've got one more for you and then we'll, we'll call it a wrap. Well, Paul, I would say the biggest challenge is how the healthcare system is designed in our country. And the fact that all of the money is on the back end of the equation in, in terms of taking care of people once they are sick. So we are challenged to get the payers at the table, to get the government in agencies and entities at the table, CMS, Medicaid, Medicare. I mean, it's gonna be a revolutionary change that needs to happen in terms of the way reimbursement occurs in our country to providers in order to change this model. I do think, you know, the, the hope and the good side of the spectrum is we do have groups like the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that have, you know, 
stood themselves up and now have 40 health systems that are at the table. And there are some systems that are significant size that are at the table that have loud, loud voices. I think we just have to figure out how to come together, how to come together with major employers across our country in order to change this model. So uh, it, it, there, there are great challenges out there, but th there's hope too, because we do see people interested in this conversation that we're having today and, and like the one we had at Brooklyn. Yeah, I, I would agree with Holly. You have to follow the money. I mean, if you change the money situation or how providers are paid, this would this would change in an instant. You know, we talk about, and I think we do need to go to medical schools and we need to, to, to train people. But if you want to change it really fast, you just change reimbursement. Uh, I've seen that happen time and time again in my career. There used to be a certain way that we would pay for mental health services. And uh, we would pay on so many days. And on that last day, people would get better and they would always, you know, the length of stay was always uh, matching the reimbursement. You change that and all of a sudden things changed. And the same thing will happen here. Uh, but how do you do that and how do you make those cases? I think we're trying to put together the data, the cost data, the outcomes, health data uh, that can start to make those cases to actually drive, you know, these changes in policy that have to occur. But, but that's really the, the crux of it. You know, Paul, a good example of that, one of the things we are trying to do is to stand up a, quote, pharmacy. So next to our retail prescription pharmacy, to have a, a true pharmacy that has fruits and vegetables that are available for our patients. But if you look at the margins that we're going to make from the retail pharmacy versus the, the food and, and, you know, well-being pharmacy, it's significantly different. So until the, the finances start flowing in a different direction, there's not going to be a lot of systems out there trying to do some of the things that we are doing. That's right. That's a, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, one of the things I've thought about is, so if you have, if you have a, um, I don't know, a handful, maybe it's two handfuls of companies that are increasingly defining the way we spend our day, whether it's Google, whether it's Starbucks, whether it's Amazon delivering packages to your home. Um, you know, and Google has spent a lot of time on this with their own employee base. You know, you've got the Google Food Labs, you got, you've got everything, um, even their, their future farming initiatives. So what, do you have any hope that a significant global employer could ever really push this, push this forward and push the adoption forward? I don't think they could do it alone because the government is a huge part of the equation. At ARH, our payer mix is 80% government. So for us, you know, there's not an employer that's large enough to, you know, overcome 80% reimbursement that's coming from the state and federal government. Some of it, I think, you know, in more urban markets, possibly more, but, you know, America is mostly a rural country still. So I, I, I think it's, it's a significant challenge. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I think most of us had a lot of hope that uh, Haven, uh, you know, Amazon, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and 
uh, J.P. Morgan that they had enough employees to actually make a difference. But of course, you know, that's no longer with us. But that was the great hope. Uh, I agree with Holly that it, won't, it will take more than one of these companies. But I think if a couple of these companies get together in the right way, and can actually agree on how they want to approach this, they could have market clout. And the clout may not be so much with individual health systems, but with the third-party insurers that they all you know, do their self-funded business through, to go to those Uniteds and the Blues Crosses of the world and say, look, this is what we want to pay for. They're ERISA. They can design their own benefits. Uh, it falls to their own bottom line. And so I think there is some clout. You know, Cummins is a, is a pretty large company, but we did not have the clout to really push this out beyond our own little clinics. And so what happens is that, you know, we could do our own little thing, but as soon as we uh, refer out to a specialist, they get back into the regular system. And so it's really hard to, to, to really see how all this comes together. But I think, you know, if you can get the business coalitions and a large, some large employers to really uh, go down this road, you could see some change. Um, and I'll just, I'll leave you with one last question. You know, a couple of years ago, we had heard talk about the possible establishment of a Department of Nutrition. Are you hearing anything more about that? Or is that a conversation that kind of came and went? I, I, I have heard rumors of that. And I know that the uh, Rockefeller Foundation uh, was really pushing hard on this a couple of years ago. It was pre-COVID. I haven't heard a lot since then. Uh, um, but yeah, I still hear talk of that. That would be wonderful. I, I agree. I think COVID derailed a lot of things, and I think that's one of them. Okay. Well, we are just about to the end of our hour. Um, I want to thank you both. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Dr. Sherney. And um, we will have this up available on our website for replay. It will also be available as an audio podcast. And um, we'll be back to you next month with the next Crisonia conversation. And we're already looking forward to, we're starting to put down the groundwork for a Crisonia forum, um, probably in late February. So thank you both. And uh, with that, we'll call it a day. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Dr. Sherning. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Paul.